relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. Welcome, dear friends. Best of the Yuletide season to you and yours. It's always a lot of fun to get our guests on the one-on-one, people who make regular appearances on our national show. But when we want to go a little bit deeper behind the curtain of the big stories of the day, that's what one-on-one is for. And I'm delighted to have with us from Grove City College, Professor Paul Kengor, who is the newly minted editor of the American Spectator. Paul, welcome back to America First, this time one-on-one. It's always good to be with you, Seb. Thank you very much. Can I can I do something amusing first? Can I just share with you one of my early Christmas gifts? Please it, do. It arrived yesterday from one of our best <laughs> best advertisers ad- advertisers called uh, Midas Gold. It's called Jabby the Elf. It has a swastika on it made of syringes. And if you open Jabby the Elf. It's not something I'm necessarily going to put on my Christmas tree, but it is rather apposite for what we are going to discuss right now. We have actually made out of China. It's nicely done, and the resemblance is quite shocking. We have little Fauci Jabby the Elf. Isn't that frightening, Paul? Now, it's made uh, out of China, not in China. <laughs> I don't know. That's a very good question. It could be both. It could be both. But anyway, I wanted to share that with you, given what we've suffered <laughs> under the last two years. I shared that with our listeners yesterday. But given what we have witnessed in the last two years and the connection to communist China, your skills are needed more than ever as the preeminent expert on uh, communism, the history of socialism in the 20th century. Let's begin with putting it into the current context of politics in America. This is a very outspoken individual who, in a couple of days' time, will be sworn in as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee on Capitol Hill in the House, none other than Jim Jordan. This just shows big tech, big media, big government working together to keep information from we the people. That's the problem. And what I'm committed to doing, what the members of the Repub- Republican members on the judiciary are committed to do, is get into the FBI's role in all this. Those weekly briefings they were doing with big tech on the heels of that letter from 51 former intel officials who, that said it was a Russian a disinformation operation. Baloney. They knew it was baloney, and yet they were doing these briefings. So that's the big problem. I'm going to tax you now with a a classroom question that I think we have to grapple with. Uh, Katie, my wife, just wrote a long paper on this issue, Cultural Marxism in America. You can can, uh, download it at the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. But but the the taxonomy, the the challenge of of socialism or left-wing radicalism today is very different from your expertise in the Cold War. And of course, I grew up in the Cold War. I think we're about the same age. I miss it immensely. I served in the British Territorial Army, you know, with, with, with a, a, a post-Cold War mission. But back then, the communists, for the most part, were over there. You could you know, point at Moscow, point at the Warsaw Pact. You could have a brave president stand at the Brandenburg Gate and say, the evil empire must tear down this wall. 
The threat of communism, Paul, has transmogrified. Uh, it has changed. The Marxists aren't over there in the second world. They're here. They're the BLM organizers, the, quote, trained ideologues. They're, they're the people in Palo Alto at Twitter colluding with the FBI to gin up these fake accusations of collusion. So have you spent any time thinking on what lessons of the Cold War we can use and which don't really translate because now the Marxist threat is Americans on American soil? Yeah, it's really true. In fact, Mark Levin calls it American Marxism. I did a review of Mark Levin's book for American Spectator about a year ago, and I pointed out in that review, Seb, that uh, indeed what we're dealing with today is a uniquely American form of Marxism. Right. I mean, the original Marxism from the 1840s. It's funny that you're asking this because I got a a text message today from another talk show host who's reading the Communist Manifesto. He said, I'm confused. How does Marx get from the from from serfdom to the bourgeoisie? Right. And and I said (laughs) and I said and I said, well, I said, first of all, don't take him too seriously. And then remember, too, that book, man, was written for the 1840s. Right. The 1840s, and I tell this to modern Marxists all the time. I'm like, hey, dude, it's the 2020s. Look out your window. You're not looking at Britain or Germany or France in the Industrial Revolution in 1848. All right, you know that. And, and, and oftentimes you'll hear people say, "Well, Marx might have been wrong about this and that and this and that." But you know, he did get he did get right the fact that there were abusive working conditions in the in the Industrial Revolution. Well, so what? So did a whole bunch of people. Charles Dickens had that right, right? I mean, I mean, you know, but 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 you know, but but you you don't you don't need to go and create this entire new ideology and so forth and so forth. But anyway, the point is, you know, we here today in America today, we're not dealing with that paradigm. We're not dealing with that structure. Uh, my friend Sam Gregg of the Acton Institute said the most difficult thing about cultural Marxism is that a lot of the people that are engaging in what is cultural Marxism don't even realize that they are. And, and if you said to them, if you said, you know, what you're doing is really a kind of Marxism applied to culture, it could be defined as a kind of cultural Marxism. They give you a blank stare. Yeah. And, and probably rightly so. And as Sam Gregg points out, the people behind the Berlin Wall knew they were behind a Berlin Wall. Right. You know, they knew what was repressing them. They knew that it was this kind of classic Soviet style economic Marxism. The people today, though, that are being repressed or affected by Marxism, um, they often don't even know it. And neither do many of the perpetrators. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I know Sam Gregg, and that's a very good observation that most of the people facilitating this are are what we called in the Cold War useful idiots. They don't even know that they're part of this machine. Let's let's go back and and be clear about the origins of all this. Because, yes, the mark, the... uh, the Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto are 19th century, 1848. I mean, the, these are old documents. However, at the time, they sold it, Marx and Engels, as a science. They said, this is a scientific thing. It's socialist science, and it is progression towards the end state of equality. It's, of course, all garbage. There's not in, nothing empirical, nothing scientific about it. But as James Lindsay pointed out just a, a week ago here on this show, 
what we've seen of it today, what we've seen it develop into, it's not even an ideology or just a political framework anymore. He sees it as a cult, and I tend to agree because it demands blind loyalty. There's something... Um, pseudo-religious when you look at what it has become today if we want to use the label woke. Is there, is there not something pseudo-religious? Which is ironic given what Marx said about religion being the opiate of the masses. Yeah, in fact, Raymond Aaron called it the opium of the intellectuals. Uh, and you know, Ronald Reagan used to say, yeah, Marxism-Leninism, that religion of theirs. And they, they treated it like a religion. And you're right. In fact, the Soviets talked about what they called scientific socialism, right, scientific Marxism. And at the eulogy for Marx's funeral in 1883, his cohort, his partner, Engels, uh, quoted, quoted Darwin. He said that Marx is doing for the, for the social sciences what Darwin did for the natural sciences. So they saw this kind of literal scientific evolution, right? So, so society would pass from a series of different stages, from slavery to feudalism to social, uh, uh, slavery to feudalism to capitalism to socialism to communism. It would go through these very various stages. So they tried to apply a scientific veneer to this progression. Now, they were atheists, they were materialists, so they didn't believe that there was a providential hand guiding events, but some sort of, a, of an evolutionary hand. But at the same time, they treated it like a religion. Uh, you read Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. Read the book, The God That Failed. In fact, read Arthur Kessler's essay in The God That Failed. And he talks about how, you know, for the Marxist, a whole new universe opens up. Uh, and you know, nothing after that, you were completely brought into the faith. All the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle come together, right? The, one cannot explain the sort of rapture that the, that the convert feels when he sees the light. So they truly did treat, treat it like a religion. And you know, Pope Benedict XVI said, for these folks, it was like Marxism would be the new Jerusalem, yeah. the heaven on earth. So ironically, they made fun of religious people. They called them superstitious idiots. Medieval mildew is what is what Lenin called religion. Uh, there is nothing more abominable than religion, he, he, he said. But at the same time, they treated it like a religion, and they themselves were like religious adherents. Indeed, the opium of the intellectuals. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And Arthur Kessler, who was a communist in Hungary, who saw the light, his book, Darkness at Noon, is a very, very, very short book. It is worth everybody's time if you want to understand what's happening to America right now. We're talking to Paul Kengel, Professor Paul Kengel from Grove City College, the editor, the brand new editor of American Spectator. And you're listening to America First one-on-one. If you enjoy our deep dive discussions, the long form, do subscribe go to spotify plug in my name sebastian gawker america first it's absolutely free guarantee that you never miss an episode leave us a five-star review and share the links with your friends likewise if you're looking for some last minute stocking stuffers or you're worried about what you're going to get for christmas check out our yuletide special at sebgawkerstore.com 15 dollars off the america first turvis tumbler mug and you get to choose one of our iconic hats so much more including the fbi t-shirt the uh, fashion Bureau of Intimidation, the Trump Challenge Coin. Get yours, so much more. Everything made in America, SebGorkaStore.com. That's S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A Store.com, SebGorkaStore.com. Guys, you are amazing. You have blown past our record for 
$1,000 raised already for our Angel Tree campaign for the children of those who have an incarcerated mother or father this Christmas. That's more than one and a half million children across America. Thank you to everybody who's donated. Just a one-time donation of $25 gets these children a Christmas gift from their incarcerated mother or father, chosen by them, with a note from their parent and a children's gospel. It's one of the most beautiful things you can do this Christmas. If you've done your Christmas shopping, if you're ready to give back, if you've had a good year, uh, please donate today. Go to sebgorka.com and click on the Angel Tree banner at the top. It's one of the most blessed things you can do this Yuletide. You can call in your donation, 888 888- 206-2794. That's 888-206-2794. SebGorka.com. That's S-E-B-G-O-R-K-A. SebGorka.com and the Angel Tree banner at the top. Now, Paul, you're a you're an academic. You teach. You're a professor. You run an institute at Grove City. You're now the new editor of American Spectator. Let me uh, get your response to something that, that we discussed with Professor Lindsay. I think it was last time that Yes, you said so many people are promoting this new version of Marxism, whatever you want to call it, uh, post-Gramscian, wokeism, what have you. And often they don't understand. They, they, They think they're just doing whatever, social justice. They have no idea that this is, in fact, communism. My contention, and he agreed, but you're right there in the trenches teaching, is that when you talk to these 20-somethings or even 30-somethings, yes, they are indoctrinated. Yes, they're told this is the only way to social justice, to have not even equality. Now it's forced equity. However, unlike the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact, the indoctrination, Paul, is incredibly shallow. They can quote the nostrums, they can quote the boilerplate, but if you give them any meaningful challenge to try and justify what they're doing or the, the lack of um, equality that it actually necessitates to enforce equity, everything crumbles. Is it truly a very shallow indoctrination? Where do you stand on this issue? Yeah, it really is. And an infamous quote from Lenin, Lenin said, give me four years with a child and the seed that I have planted will never be uprooted. And, and, and that's a real quote from Lenin. And, you know, so four years, that's a time to get a college degree. But I would say that students that were studying, in fact, I know, that were studying Marxism 100 years ago, who joined the Communist Youth League and then went on the Communist Party USA, they were much more steeped in, in, in what they were reading, what they were learning. They actually knew Marx. They actually knew Lenin. And today, you're right, Seb, it is really shallow. I've been... I've been going around since the early 2000s speaking for YAF, Young America's Foundation, um, also ISI, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, giving a speech, a talk called Why Communism is Bad. And, I, <laughs> and, I've, gotten, and I've gotten so many emails, I mean, you should see my box, from students kind of desperate pleading from you know this or that university saying, dear professor, I saw, I, I saw your lecture on YouTube. I see that this is up at YAF. Could you please come to our college? Because you know, all we've got we've got an economics professor who literally has a bust of Karl Marx in the office. And I come in and I speak in in, in these rooms, Seb. And first of all, 
there's never any professors in there, right? The professors don't even come. But the room's usually packed. And I got to tell you, in all honesty, I've never been harassed. I've never been shouted down, maybe because I bring a stack of books. I'll bring a copy of the Communist Manifesto. I bring the Harvard University Press book, the Black Book of Communism. I bring Alexander Yakovlev's Yale University Press book, A Century of Violence in Soviet Russia, Solzhenitsyn, and on and on. And I just, I just give these students facts, and you can tell they've never heard this stuff before. I, I spoke at a really elite university. I shouldn't name it. I won't. I'll get in trouble. In Pennsylvania last May, and two students came up. I spoke on Marx's personal life, on how Marx was a racist, an anti-Semite, all these other things. And they came up and they said, we just had a full semester course on Marxism taught by two economics professors. And we've never heard any of this and we did not have to read the Communist Manifesto. I said, what did you read? And they said, just kind of like various excerpts from different articles, and really, we just took notes from what the professors talked about. So it, it was really shallow, and, and, which also means, here's the good news, all right, here's the good news, that when, when you confront them with facts yeah. and with data, you know, and they're smart, they're not dumb, right? They've, they usually have good minds, right? They, they have high IQs, they can think, they, 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 can, they can rationalize. When you hit them with this information, they are riveted. The hands are up in the air, they're asking the questions, and it doesn't take them long to say, man, we've been duped, we've been, high, we've been had, we've been misinformed. This is like, you know, to use the Soviet word, desinformatia, this is like disinformation that yeah. we've been receiving. It doesn't take them long at all for the, light, for the light bulbs to go off. The only key is, if you can even get somebody you know, of my views to speak to them in the four years that they're at that university. Uh, most of them are going to have to learn it when they leave. But uh, you're right. It's very shallow. It's very shallow. Uh, they are dupes, which is a good title for a book. In fact, it's my favorite <laughs> book by Paul Kengo. He's written so many. Let me just rattle through some of the titles that are worth your time. Dupes, How America's Adversaries Have manip Manipulated Progressives for a Century, God and uh, Ronald Reagan, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Communism. That's a really fun one. A Pope. And a president, John Paul II, Ronald Reagan, uh, and the devil and Karl Marx. And we'll be talking about his most recent book in a moment. Um, but very briefly, I think for me, it's a life-changing book. Would you say a few words on the Black Book of Communism? Yeah, and thanks for plugging all those stuffing, uh, stocking stuffers. They're all better than the little Fauci elf, I got to <laughs> tell you. <laughs> but yeah, no, the Black Book of Communism came out at the end of the last century, 1999, 98-99. Um, it, was, it was translated by Harvard University Press. It was originally published in, in French. Uh, Stéphane Courtois was the editor. And all the different chapters are written by and large by leftists, former leftists and ex-communists who said, look— We've got to come to terms with the fact that we were sympathetic to or supported a communist ideology, which was an absolute killing machine, right? I, yeah, the, the, they knew that this was responsible for the deaths of tens of millions of people, if not 100 million people. One of the things they set out to do in that 800-page book was try to put an estimate, a tag, on just how many people died from communism. But, but country by country, that's the stunning thing. These, these, are, these are socialist historians, sociologists, chapter by chapter, from Tsarist Russia to Cambodia, country by country, 
Uh, and it is a truly academic work. It changed the lives of the authors, Courtois included, and they yeah. came up with the seminal number that in the 20th century, a hundred million people were murdered in the name of Marxist ideology. So if you haven't read it, uh, it is a reference work, and it's, it's, you know, it's the empirical evidence of just how lethal this idea, idea is. That's the Black oh. Book of Communism edited by Stephen Courtois. Sorry, go ahead. That's okay. And the 100 million figure, uh, China is uh, 62 or 65 yes. million. And Russia is only 20 or 25 million. And in fact, um, Solzhenitsyn and others, Robert Conquest from Hoover, you know, they say 60, 70 million. Um, Alexander Yakovlev's Yale University Press book, A Century of Violence in Soviet Russia, which came out 2003 or 2004. He was given, he was Gorbachev's chief reformer. And he was given the job of counting the skulls at the end of the Cold War and trying to find out how many people were killed. And Yakovlev Seb, says in that book, the quote, Stalin alone annihilated 60 to 70 million people, unquote. Wow. So, so yeah, the, the real numbers, it's a minimum of 100 million. Um, the Black Book underestimated the number of deaths in Korea, North Korea. So it's probably more like 130, 140 million, which would be double the combined death tolls of World War One and World War Two. Correct. Frank. Yeah, correct. Yeah, uh, uh, it was 60 million that died in World War II. So at least, at least 100 million, if not uh, 200 million killed in the name of equality, in the name of socialist utopia. Uh, please follow us on all social media platforms, bar the fascistic YouTube. We are on Truth Social, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Telegram, on Getter, on Parler. You can watch us on Salem News Channel. And most recently is my Substack for unique content, go to sebastiangorka.substack.com. If you enjoy America First one-on-one, support those who make it possible. Great Americans, patriots, friends of President Trump's like Mike Lindell. You know the left wants to cancel him. Even the FBI have gone after him. Let's support him today. Even if the big box stores refuse, have banned his products, including Walmart, you can go directly to MyPillow.com and order any of Mike Lindell's more than 150 items. He's got amazing Christmas offers, BOGO offers. Use my name for up to 66% off. He sold 72 million of his My Pillow, the pillow that never gets hot, never loses shape. That's how good it is. But it's just one of more than 150 items. Call today. Phone in your order. 800-829-8468. That's 800-829-8468. Or just go to MyPillow.com. Promo code G-O-R-K-A. That's MyPillow.com. Promo code G-O-R-K-A. One person I want to talk about before we get to your your latest book. Will you explain why, and it's the person, you know, even most educated conservatives have never heard of, which is, you know, shocking. Why is Antonio Gramsci, this crippled Italian communist, perhaps the most important thinker when it comes to modernizing Karl Marx's thinking? Yeah, in fact, my friend Sam Gregg, who I quoted earlier, calls Gramsci the most influential socialist ever. And and he was he was an Italian Marxist. So he was prior to the Frankfurt School. In fact, he wasn't part of the Frankfurt School. He was he was thrown in jail by um, by Mussolini and Gramsci's prison notebooks are really kind of the seminal work on Marxism applied to culture. And, 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 by, and by the way, Seb, the editor 
of of the American uh, of the uh, Columbia University Press published uh, prison notebooks of Gramsci was a fellow by the name of Joseph Buttigieg, Joseph Buttigieg, who's the father of Pete. And in fact, in fact, Pete is is acknowledged and thanked in the book by his father. Pete's father, Joe, who's at Notre Dame, did this at Notre Dame, was the founder of the inter- and president of the International Gramsci Society. And, and so, when so, he died for more than a year, there was a, a eulogy in memoriam page um, on the opening URL of americansocialists.org. So, you know, Pete Buttigieg's father is worshipped by the communists of America. Uh, explain what it was about Gramsci's updating of Marx that was so important in Western countries, in advanced countries like America? Well, he's credited with a phrase that he didn't actually say. A a, a German communist in the 60s named Rudy Deutschke. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Rudy Deutschke, yeah. Exactly. And and it's a phrase about the long march through the institutions. So the idea of applying this form of Marxism to education, to media, to communications. In other words, move it from the factory floor to the university classroom. Um, by the way, let me say here too, if you go to American Spectator, I've written two articles a couple of years ago called Cultural Marxism and Its Conspirators, part one and part two. And I go through this very carefully, and your wife has too, Seb, but the phrase cultural Marxism, if you look it up on, on Wikipedia or whatever, Google, it says something like, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Oh, hang on, hang on. It's better than that. James Lindsay told me a few months ago the entry for cultural Marxism on Wikipedia has been deleted, Paul. Yeah, yeah, it has. It has indeed. And I could really talk talk a lot about this. In fact, I wrote a third piece on it for American Spectator. I had a group of Grove City College alumni, um, left-of-center alumni, go after me because they used that definition of cultural Marxism and assumed that I was pushing an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. And I emailed one of them. I said, man, if you would have just done a search of my name next to you would have seen that I wrote about it as a conspiracy <laughs> theory. Look at this. But 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 the, it, what it is, okay, if you don't like the term cultural Marxism, <laughs> okay, then it's Marxism applied to culture, okay? <laughs> All right? It's it's stepping beyond the class strictures that, you know, Marxism is just based on a class interpretation. It it goes beyond that. Yeah. and, and And the people, the practitioners and founders actually use the phrase cultural Marxism. I, I mean, go and read the books by Adorno and Horkheimer and, 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 and the others from the Frank school, Frankfurt School. We're dealing with people at Wikipedia and Google. Talk about shallow, right? To, to, be, to have some faceless millennial uh, give a definition, quote unquote, of cultural Marxism that they clearly know nothing nothing about and by the way end up smearing not just people like myself and others who are writing about this but a lot of leftist writers i mean you know there are leftists who've written books on this subject occidental college obama's alma mater in the in the critical theory department of critical theory had, had this page where they talked about Cultural Marxism, they used all these different words. And I noticed, Seb, about two years ago, it's been scrubbed. (laughs) They took it all down because they realized at some point, wow, these screwy people on the left are going to end up calling us uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. We better take down the word cultural Marxism, right? 
when when they don't have anything else, they resort to the ad hominem and they resort to the word racist and bigot, which sadly they have denuded of any content. We're talking to Grove City College professor Paul Kango, author of The Devil and Bella Dodd. And we're going to discuss who Bella Dodd is next here on America First. Coming to you from the relieffactor.com studios. Relief Factor, pain relief that works, pain relief that's real, pain relief that is liberating half a million Americans right now, me included. Yes, I had a lower back pain issue that played me for nine years, almost a decade. I took Relief Factor, and I was pain-free two weeks later, and I'm still pain-free more than three and a half years later. Find out for yourself. Order the three-week quick starter pack at relieffactor.com, or just call 800-583-84. You've waited long enough. You deserve to know what have you got to lose. Nothing except the pain. Call night right now, 800-583-84, relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Thank you to all of you for your very, very kind comments on Dr. G Mark II. Yes, 42 pounds lighter. Thank you to the wonderful offices of Dr. Ashley Lucas and her amazing team at My PhD Weight Loss. After 20 years of trying to shed the pounds, the first diet that actually worked for me. No pill popping, no stupid calorie counting or starvation, just five meals a day with a diet that burns the fat off. Find out for yourself if I can do it. Anyone can, 864-644-1900, or go to myphdweightloss.com. That's 864-644-1900, myphdweightloss.com. All right, he has written a whole library of books. Uh, Hot off the presses is The Devil and Bella Dodd, co-authored with Mary Nichols, One Woman's Struggle Against Communism and Her Redemption. It's quite ironic that this book is freshly published as a good friend of the show, Paul, was uh, um, defrocked from the Catholic Church, uh, Father Frank Pavone, for crimes that have not actually been enunciated by the Vatican, a strong conservative, a very strong pro-life advocate. This book has some shocking things to say about the infiltration of the religious establishment in the United States, does it not? Yeah, it sure does. And really to segue from what you said before about the name-calling, the things that they engage in, Bella Dodd was like a female Whitaker Chambers. And when she left the party in June 1948, she gets a call at her home from an AP reporter who says, Dr. Dodd, we have a statement here from the Communist Party. It says that you are anti-Negro, anti-Puerto Rican, anti-Semitic, pro-fascist, pro-Nazi. Do you have a statement to make, ma'am? <laughs> right? And it's just, it's exactly what they've, I mean, they yeah. said they've been doing this for 100 years. I, I mean, this is, that's page one of the playbook. As soon as they want to go after you, they just go, oh, page one, what does this say? Oh, oh, I see, racist, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it, the, it's the Alinsky tactics of, you know, uh, isolate, triangulate, and then destroy. That's, that's the Alinsky left-wing tactics, whether it's, you know, Bella Dodd in the 50s, whether it's Whitaker Chambers in the 60s, it doesn't matter. So tell us about a little bit about this woman's journey and what made her see the light. Yeah, by the way, Alinsky said that the reason he never joined the Communist Party is he could never subject himself to Communist Party discipline. And the, and, and the Communist Party discipline was brutal. If you broke ranks, that's what they did to you. But, but she joined the party 1930s, really joined formally in 1943 when she became a card-carrying communist. 
because at that point, everyone knew that she was. She was one of the highest ranking women in the, in the party, if not the highest ranking woman in the party. And, and she ran the teachers union. She ran the education front. Seb, she put, a th she said this under Senate testimony, FBI said this in FBI reports, out of 10,000 members of the New York State Teachers Union, Bella Dodd placed 1,000 to 1,500 communists. She had 500 communist teachers marching in the, in the May Day 1936 parade in New York City. So she was a master organizer, master infiltrator, the Longshoremen's Union, all sorts of other groups. And at one point, and really this is the heart of our book, um, they went to her. She said that she helped, quote, place over 1,000 communist men, unquote, in Catholic seminaries. Now, this shouldn't shock people because the party was already doing this to the Methodist Church, the Episcopal Church, the Presbyterian Church. Uh, this was testified under oath to Congress by former communists Ben Gitlow, Manning Johnson, uh, Louis Boudin's editor of The Daily Worker, all these others. But in Bella's case, they, they actually went after the Catholic Church and Catholic seminaries. It's, a, it's an extraordinary story. So let me ask you a uh an up-to-date political question. So back then, it's clear what we're talking about is the Communist Party. It's the underground Communist Party and its front organizations that, that were the threat. Today, the, the formal Communist Party in America is risible. It's a joke. It's not really a thing. You have the Democratic Socialists of America. You have the DSA. But what is there an epicenter for the new ideological threat? Is it simply the colleges? Is it the teacher training academies? Because it's not, it's not the Communist Party as was in the 40s and 50s. At some point, there was a transition. What, what is, to use a military term, the, the center of gravity for this ideological entity today, in your opinion? Yeah, and, and the underground party in Honolulu was called the Church by Frank Marshall Davis. Yes. It was Barack Obama's mentor. His CPUSA number was 47544. The man uh, on whose knee Obama bounced and admits this whilst not using his real name in his autobiography. That's exactly right. He called him only Frank in the, in, in, in the, auto, in the autobiography. But Communist Party USA today has about 5,000 members. That's it. And really where the action is, and they now have almost 100,000 what they literally call comrades, are the Democratic Socialists of America. And that's the group of AOC, Ilhan Omar, Cori Bush, um, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and several other members of Congress that have been elected. And by the way, you Democrats listening to me, all right, listen carefully, because if, if you're informed, you know this. And by the way, Nancy Pelosi knows this, and so do a lot of other moderate Democrats. These DSA members get elected by primarying moderate Democrats, all right? They don't run in safe Republican districts. Right? Here in Pennsylvania, they beat people like the Costa brothers, who are like traditional Catholic Democrats from, from Western Pennsylvania. So that's where the action is. And then beyond that, there are what uh, People's World, which is the successor publication to The Daily Worker, calls culture, culture workers. And isn't that funny, right, Seb? They're not calling for they're not calling for steel workers. 
They're not calling for miners. They've given up on truckers, right? Those are all, you know, Trump, MAGA, uh, Neanderthals in their view, right? They want culture workers. They want people at Starbucks and the universities and the coffee shops. That's where they're going. So, so you know, they're, they're always looking for the proletariat, Martin Malia used to say, would be both the— um, uh, 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 would, would be both the victim class and the redeemer class. They're looking today always for new victim groups to fight the culture war, the culture battles. It might be on gender, it might be on race, it might be LGBTQ, but they're looking more broadly. And sometimes, again, the people that are get involved in these things and duped by them don't even know that they're engaging in this kind of Marxism applied to culture or gender or race or whatever else. It's, it's so fascinating. You, you can't call them uh, cultural Marxists. That's <laughs> racist. But they are <laughs> recruiting people to be cultural activists. That tells you yeah. everything you need to know. He's a co-author uh, with Mary Nichols of The Devil and Bella Dodd and uh, numerous other works that are all worth your time. Uh, please read the American Spectator, spectator.org. We're talking to our good friend, Professor Paul Kangor, one-on-one. This is America First, coming to you from the relieffactor.com studios. If you're in daily pain, if you've tried everything else and failed to find relief, you owe it to yourself to find out if this solution could work for you. The three-week quick starter pack costs just nineteen ninety-five. That translates to less than a dollar a day. What can you get for less than a dollar a day? Nothing. You can't even get a cup of coffee, but you could get liberated from your daily pain. There's only one way to find out. It's super easy. Order the three-week quick starter pack at relieffactor.com. That's relieffactor.com or call 800-583-84, 800-583-84, or just go to relieffactor.com. All right, the big question for the man who understands the history of this ideological threat, not just to America, but to Western civilization, how perturbed are you, Professor Kengor, when you see the revelations of just the last few days, last few weeks of the most powerful law enforcement agency in America colluding with its ideological bedfellows in Palo Alto to censor those who politically disagree with them. It seems as if uh, conservatives are being targeted day in, day out, whether it's Republicans, pro-life activists, members of the president's family, people who worked for President Trump. Uh, this, this isn't communism a la the Cold War, but how disturbed are you in terms of what we already have witnessed? Well, let me throw it back at the left with communism and the Cold War. They despise J. Edgar Hoover, don't they, Seb? Right? Yes. And, you know, he was supposedly, what did they hate him for? They hated him for investigating communism, for, you know, for the uh, working with the Kennedys to wiretap Martin Luther King Jr. That was Robert F. Kennedy and John F. Kennedy who did that, right? They hated uh, Hoover for all kinds of things. What did they do to him? They called him a transvestite. They called him a homosexual. They gay bashed, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the left did, right? J. Edgar Hoover was a crossdresser. Ah! Right? Yeah, they, they, they smeared the guy for going after communists and doing all the other things that he, that he was doing. Um, so, but, but, but Hoover ran a clean FBI. It was non-ideological. Oh, yeah, I guess it was ideological in that it was anti-communist, but that, that's okay, right? It's American to be anti-communist, all right? Uh, but, but to see these agencies today 
being used and manipulated. And I'm so glad that Elon Musk is outing some of the things that happened at Twitter that we knew were happening at Twitter. Uh, you just the left squawks all the time about democracy, democracy, democracy. Well, you, you can't have a freely functioning democracy if these kind of um, you know platforms of influence are are um, you know gotten a hold of by ideologues on the hard left who censor people they disagree with. That's not democracy. Now, these regimes, if you look at the Soviet Union, if you look at uh, the Warsaw Pact, they sooner or later, the House of Cards collapses. We're still waiting for that to happen in China, Cuba, North Korea. But will does this system here in America, will this new form of, of communism, of Marxism, uh, does it have to eventually collapse because of its inherent contradictions, Paul? Well, that's what Ronald Reagan said, right? The communism would collapse on its own weight. It's inherent contradictions. He said, I was shocked to learn that the Soviet system was held together by bailing wire, yeah, right? Yeah. You just cut it loose and the whole thing would fall apart. But the difficulty today, and I go back again to what Sam Gregg said about the most dangerous socialist in history, Antonio Gramsci, is that a lot of the people today that are engaging in this Marxism applied to culture, gender, race, everything else, they don't even know that they're engaged in it. And, and so it's, it's, it's much more difficult to stop. Yeah. Reagan in the 80s could lay out with Bill Clark and Bill Casey and Cap Weinberger and others, you know, a, a plan of 10, 12 different steps, efforts, programs, SDI, Evil Empire speech, Brandenburg Gate, right, uh, placing INF missiles in Europe, all these different things to try to reverse Soviet communism, Richard Pipes, right, uh, NSDD 66, NSDD 75. But how do you fight this? Yeah. How do you fight this? How do you tell the people that are engaging in this to stop it when they don't even know they're engaging in it? So in a way, it's much more difficult and insidious today. He's the director for the Institute for Faith and Freedom. Some of those answers are in my wife's new paper, heritage.org, The Threat of Cultural Marxism, which is real. And the new book is The Devil and Bella Dodd. Merry Christmas to you, Professor Kengo, and your family. You've been listening to America First one-on-one, -on -one, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Keep your head on a swivel. Watch your six. Hold the line. Never give up. Never give in. And stay frosty. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.